Hello, and welcome to the Tomb Creepypasta Podcast. Thank you for joining. Tonight's first story, Autopilot, by ScarJo, from Creepypasta.org. Have you ever forgotten your phone? When did you realize you'd forgotten it? I'm guessing you didn't just smack your forehead and exclaim, Damn! Apropos of nothing. The realization probably didn't dawn on you spontaneously. More likely, you reached down for your phone, pawing open your pocket or handbag, and were momentarily confused by it not being there. Then you did a mental restep of the morning's events. Shit. In my case, my phone's alarm woke me up as normal, but I realized the battery was lower than I expected. It was a new phone, and it had this annoying habit of leaving applications running that drained the battery overnight. So I put on the charge while I showered instead of into my bag like normal. It was a momentary slip from the routine, but that was all it took. Once in the shower, my brain got back into the routine it follows every morning, and that was it. Forgotten. This wasn't just me being clumsy, as I later researched. This is a recognized brain function. Your brain doesn't just work on one level, it works on many. Like, when you're walking somewhere, you think about your destination and avoiding hazards, but you don't need to think about keeping your legs moving properly. If you did, the entire world would turn into one massive, hilarious QWOP cosplay. I wasn't thinking about regulating my breathing. I was thinking whether I should grab a coffee on the drive to work. I did. I wasn't thinking about moving my breakfast through my intestines. I was wondering whether I'd finish on time to pick up my daughter Emily from nursery after work, or get stuck with another late fee. This is the thing. There's a level of your brain that just deals with routine, so that the rest of your brain can think about other things. Think about it. Think about your last commute. What do you actually remember? Little, if anything, probably. Most common journeys blur into one, and recalling anyone in particular is scientifically proven to be very difficult. Do something often enough and it becomes routine. Keep doing it, and it stops being processed by the thinking bit of your brain and gets relegated to a part of the brain dedicated to dealing with routine. Your brain keeps doing it without you thinking about it. Soon, you think about your route to work about as much as you do keeping your legs moving when you walk. As in, not at all. Most people call it autopilot, but there's danger there. If you have a break in your routine, your ability to remember and account for the break is only as good as your ability to stop your brain going into routine mode. My ability to remember my phone being on the counter is only as reliable as my ability to stop my brain entering morning routine mode, which would dictate that my phone is actually in my bag. But I didn't stop my brain entering routine mode. I got in the shower, as normal. Routine started, exception forgotten. Autopilot engaged. My brain was back in the routine. I showered. I shaved. The radio forecast amazing weather. I gave Emily her breakfast and loaded her into the car. She was so adorable that morning. She complained about the bad sun in the morning blinding her, saying it stopped her having a little sleep on the way to the nursery, and left. That was the routine. It didn't matter that my phone was on the counter, charging silently. My brain was in the routine, and in the routine, my phone was in my bag. This is why I forgot my phone. Not clumsiness. Not negligence, nothing more my brain entering routine mode and overriding the exception. Autopilot engaged. I left for work. It's a swelteringly hot day already. 
The bad sun had been burning since before my traitorously absent phone woke me. The steering wheel was burning hot to the touch when I sat down. I think I heard Emily shift over behind my driver's seat to get out of the glare. But I got to work, submitted the report, attended the morning meeting. It's not until I took a quick coffee break and reached for my phone that the illusion shattered. I did a mental restep. I remember the dying battery. I remember putting it on the charge. I remember leaving it there. My phone was on the counter. Autopilot disengaged. Again, therein lies the danger. Until you have that moment, the moment you reach for your phone and shatter the illusion, that part of the brain is still in routine mode. It has no reason to question the facts of the routine. That's why it's a routine. Attrition of repetition. It's not as if anyone could say, why didn't you remember your phone? Didn't it occur to you? How could you forget? You must be negligent. This is to miss the point. My brain was telling me the routine was completed as normal, despite the fact that it wasn't. It wasn't that I forgot my phone. According to my brain, according to the routine, my phone was in my bag. Why would I think to question it? Why would I check? Why would I suddenly remember, out of nowhere, that my phone was on the counter? My brain was wired into a routine, and the routine was that my phone was in my bag. The day continued to bake. The morning haze gave way to the relentless fever heat of the afternoon. Tarmac bubbled. The direct beams of heat threatened to crack the pavement. People swapped coffees for iced smoothies. Jackets discarded, sleeves rolled up, ties loosened, brows mopped. The park slowly filled with sunbathers and barbecues. Window frames threatened to warp. The thermometer continued to swell. Thank fuck the offices were air-conditioned. But as ever, the furnace of the day gave way to a cooler evening. Another day, another dollar. Still cursing myself for forgetting my phone, I drove home. The day's heat had baked the inside of the car, releasing a horrible smell from somewhere. When I arrived on the driveway, the stones crunching comfortably under my tires, my wife greeted me at the door. Where's Emily? Fuck. As if the phone wasn't bad enough. After everything, I left Emily at the fucking nursery after all. I immediately sped back to the nursery. I got to the door and started practicing my excuses, wondering vainly if I could charm my way out of a late fee. I saw a piece of paper stuck to the door. Due to vandalism overnight, please use side door. Today only. Overnight? What? The door was fine this morning. I froze. My knees shook. Vandals. A change in the routine. My phone was on the counter. I hadn't been here this morning. My phone was on the counter. I'd driven past because I was drinking my coffee. I'd not dropped off Emily. My phone was on the counter. She'd moved her seat. I hadn't seen her in the mirror. My phone was on the counter. She'd fallen asleep out of the bad sun. She didn't speak when I drove past her nursery. My phone was on the counter. She'd changed the routine. My phone was on the counter. She'd changed the routine and I'd forgotten to drop her off. My phone was on the counter. Nine hours. That car. That baking sun. No air. No water. No power. No help. That heat. A steering wheel too hot to touch. That smell. I walked to the car door. Numb. Shock. I opened the door. My phone was on the counter, and my daughter was dead. Autopilot.
disengaged. Tonight's second story, John from the Shell Station, by S. Lane, from creepypasta.org. I was never a big fan of school. I didn't like most of my classes in high school, barely had any real friends, and absolutely despised waking up at 5 a.m. Myself and my neighbor Kelly would get in my car around 5.45 and head to school. Before you ask, Kelly and I had a short fling when she'd first moved in next door, but we just weren't a match. Anyway, living in the backwoods of Geauga County, Ohio, we took the back roads. There isn't much outside of main roads out here, but there are a few landmarks to pass on the 10-minute daybreak drive. A little country souvenir shop called Farley's, a few horse and cattle farms, and a little shell gas station. I guess I shouldn't say small, but after touring with a band and seeing travel stations outside of Nashville and the like, this place was nothing to call home about. They carried your typical essentials, cigarettes, soda, travel razors, and toothpaste. Normal shit, you know? Anyway, early in the morning, this guy John worked the register. He's a pretty creepy dude. Late 40s with a big beard, earrings, and a bad eye. His left eye looked similar to that of a blind person's. We always called him the pirate. He liked to hit on Kelly, who was 16 at the time. Oh, it was dismal. Anyway, we'd normally stop here each morning and get Red Bull or whatever we fancied. Aside from John the Pirate's occasional rude comments, it was normally pretty uneventful. He never said much. Definitely wasn't the kind of guy who'd tell you to have a nice day. Going there every morning for close to three years, I noticed he drove a little green Ford pickup. I noticed Pennsylvania plates on it. One morning I asked him about his plates. I was expecting him to be offensive or offended, but instead, he explained that he lives in Erie, Pennsylvania and drives an hour and a half to work each night. Since this is the only 24-hour anything in our area, he was hired as the third shift guy, working 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. I figured fair enough. Jobs are probably hard to come by in Erie, and didn't pay it a second thought. Over the next few weeks, John became more extroverted when Kelly and I would stroll in each morning. Not a big deal, but the things he told us became more and more strange. The first morning after he'd told us about his living situation, he somewhat randomly went into a monologue about how his wife had left him. A little strange. About a week later, Kelly casually asked him how Pennsylvania was. He sort of froze for a second and suddenly told us, You know, I was in prison for 19 years. Me and Kelly looked at each other with the classic what-the-fuck look. He continued, Manslaughter. Ain't nothing I can do about it now, huh? He said with a chuckle, which was extremely unsettling in that situation. We said a quick thanks for our daily caffeine and didn't waste time getting out the door. We were both a little stunned. To be honest, yeah, he looks like a guy who probably did some time, but it all started to add up. He had a record in Pennsylvania, so he had to come all the way here to find a job. Either way, this dude was not good news. After that morning, we made a point to avoid going in there. I wasn't in there at any time of the day for about five years. In July of 2013, I turned 21. I'd gotten most of my partying days out of my system as a teenager, but I still wanted to buy booze for the first time, legally. The clock struck midnight, and I set out. I'd been hanging around Cleveland a good bit by this point, so the thought of nothing is open after nine in this town, dumbass, didn't hit me until I was on the road. I passed the Shell station. John's green truck was outside. I was nervous, but I thought, hey, he'll probably wish me a happy birthday, and I'll be on my way. I pulled in. John was outside smoking a cigarette. He held the door open for me and we walked inside. 
I picked up a case of Bud Light and was looking over the candy when I heard John's unnerving chuckle coming from the counter. I turned to see him looking down with a wide, maniacal grin on his face. He was slitting his wrist with a box knife. I dropped the beer and jumped back against the freezer doors as he looked towards me with that psychotic smile and held his arms up, sending waves of blood down them and into streams dripping onto the counter. I ran towards the station's bathrooms where I figured I could call the police to save me from this madman. I opened the bathroom door, ran in, slammed and locked it, and collapsed in the floor. What in the fuck? What the fuck? What did I just witness? However, John wasn't dead. Perhaps not even injured. I heard whistling, a happy, whistled tune, growing closer to the bathroom. I saw him pass the door, whistling the happy tune, and I could hear blood dripping onto the floor as he passed. He continued pacing back and forth in front of the door, his steps growing faster every few passes. The tap, tap, tap of blood dripping on the floor growing more frequent. The tune began to slow down. Not that he was whistling slower. His actual voice pitch was dropping. It dropped from normal, like a record slowing down, until the tune was an ominous, low-pitched, and menacing sound that shook the bathroom walls like an earthquake. The low rumble grew in volume, and finally ended with a low, rumbling chuckle. I couldn't take it. I fell on the floor and covered my ears, praying that whatever was happening would just kill me if that's what it wanted. It stopped. Quiet seemed to envelop the little gas station. I heard a few cars passing outside, the typical sounds of a late night in a small town. I slowly opened the door, peeking out and expecting John to jump out and grab me with his bloody arms and that demonic smile. But no. Instead... I walked out. John was nowhere to be seen. However, behind the counter was a younger kid, about 23 or 24, with shoulder-length straight blonde hair. He was seated with his feet up on the counter, leaning back against the cigarette cupboard, reading a skateboard magazine. What the fuck? I walked up to him, obviously rattled and shaking. Where the fuck is John, I demanded. The kid, sounding bored, replied, Uh, I'm John, dude. What's up? He looked up from the magazine. What just happened? What the hell? The cops are on the way here. You'd better start talking, I shouted, growing more tense at this kid obviously covering up for the psycho. His face betrayed a hint of concern. The cops? For what, man? He drawled like Sean Penn's character in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I looked in his eyes. He's being sincere. He really had no idea what had just transpired. How... I did my best to calm down. I explained that the psycho who usually works nights had slid his wrists while laughing like a maniac and had cornered me in the bathroom. The kid now seemed genuinely concerned. This is when things became very bizarre. Uh, dude, I work nights here. I have since 2009. They can't find anyone else to work third shift, so I get all those hours. My jaw must have hit my navel. I asked, no, the big guy, John, with the messed up eye. The kid's face went pale. I thought I had him. He was covering up for that nutcase for some reason. The kid reached into his pocket and pulled out his wallet. 
He opened the ID flap, which revealed a picture of a much younger him next to John. They were smiling. It took me a minute to process this. As I was thinking, the kid picked up the phone at the counter and dialed. He pressed the speakerphone button so that the ringing came through a small speaker in the unit. The ringing stopped, and a female voice said, S.C.I. Green, your name, please? The kid said, John Monroe Jr. I want to see if my father is still incarcerated there. Name is John Monroe Sr. The woman on the other end made noise as if she was reaching for something. Sundry hums, yada yadas, until she spoke up. Ah, here, John Monroe Sr., taken into custody in 1990 and currently serving 11 life sentences for... Oh, goodness. Yes, he's currently in our custody. The kid's voice shook noticeably. Before she could finish her sentence, he blurted out, Can you please check and see if he's there, like right now, please? The woman spoke away from the phone. Arnie, can you check on 0111? Got a call asking if he's here. Sounds worried. We waited about 30 seconds, both me and this kid pouring sweat. We heard the phone being picked up and the woman said, Sir? Yes, he's here. Hasn't been allowed out of his unit in 41 hours. The kid breathed a heavy sigh and said, Fuck, not again. Tonight's final story, Rule of Seven, by Babylon, from creepypasta.org. The following is an account of events that took place in the late summer of 2001. I can neither confirm nor deny its validity. It was recounted to me by my brother-in-law, who disappeared in the summer of 2008. Just off Route 49, in Clay County, Alabama, there is a house. It's abandoned now, slowly rotting away to dust. But in 2001, I lived there. There is one reason I left. Fear. It started in July. My dog, Georgia, had died earlier that month at the age of 14. My girlfriend had left me, and I was heavy in debt. It's safe to say things were pretty shit. But one night, things took a sudden turn for the macabre. The phone was ringing, and when I picked up, it was my neighbor, Mr. Bronson. He said he'd seen lights around my property, about a mile down the track from his, and he wanted to check if I was okay. After giving him my assurance that I was okay, I headed outside to look for any lights. Maybe rowdy teenagers were nearby or something. I trod through the darkness barefoot, just with my dressing gown and a flashlight. Silence greeted me. Silence and darkness. No rowdy teenagers, no mysterious lights, no nothing. I turned around and headed back inside to sleep. The next morning, I went to check around the property. The front door had a strange symbol daubed on it in black paint. It was two black triangles arranged to make a diamond with a gap in the middle. A line connected the two triangles' furthermost points. Underneath was scrawled, Rule of Seven, in the same paint. I stared at it in disbelief. This kind of thing didn't happen around here. After calling Mr. Bronson, the cops, and anyone else I could think of, I resigned myself to scrubbing it off with a sponge and a bucket of water. Later that night, I entered my kitchen and saw something white on the table. 
I picked it up cautiously. It was a plain sheet of white paper. In the middle were the words, Rule of Seven. I swore, loudly. Someone had been in my house. Someone had been in my house, and I didn't even notice. I locked all the doors, checked every room, and went to my phone. There was no dial tone, no operator, nothing. Just silence. Someone must have cut the line. I was beginning to panic. I went to my gun safe and pulled out my weapon. It was a Colt M1911. Loaded. I flicked off the safety. I slowly stalked upstairs to my bedroom, jumping at every shadow. I barricaded the door, locked the window, and crawled into my bed. Sleep was impossible. Every sound I heard convinced me that whoever came in earlier was still inside. I clung to my firearm and stared at my digital clock. It was 3.49 when the power went. The clock flickered off and was quickly joined by the lights. My heart turned cold when I realized that the flashlight was still on the kitchen table. I edged open my door. Silence and darkness. Just more silence and darkness. I walked blindly down the stairs, weapon at the ready. The only sound was my breathing and the creaking of the floorboards beneath my feet. I reached the kitchen and grabbed my flashlight. I fumbled with the switch, and the sweet relief of light flooded the room. The kitchen door that led out to the yard was open, shaking in the wind, even though I locked it five hours ago and the keys were still in my pocket. Just in the corner of my vision, I saw something moving in the shadows. Quicker than a bullet, I swung around. My eyes landed on an empty patch of wall. I stared at it intensely for what could have been hours, when a sharp noise broke my concentration. I panicked, backing into a corner. Vomit was rising in my throat. I breathed deeply. It was just a dog barking in the distance. The panic began to subside. My stomach clenched and I threw up onto the cold floorboards. I dropped the flashlight and watched it roll into the kitchen counter. Putting the gun down, I dropped to the floor and felt under the counter to grab it. My hand met nothing but dusty air. I reached further down the gap. My finger brushed something. I reached out to feel what it was. My hand was met with another. A human hand. It was cold and hairy. I pulled back in pure shock, but it grabbed me. Its sharp, long nails dug into my skin, drawing blood. I couldn't get free. Blood was pouring down my arm. I was looking at the floor. It was cold and dark. I was lying on the kitchen floor. Had the hand been real? I didn't know. Maybe it was a dream. But when I felt my arm, it was coated with dried blood. Panicked, I felt around for my gun. My fingers met its grip and I pulled it up. I leveled it at the kitchen counter and opened fire. The flash illuminated the room and with terror I saw blood splattered all across the walls. It had been splashed to form the same symbol in those words. Rule of seven. It was my blood. I remembered now. My fingers were red and raw from scratching the symbol into the wood so many times. Rule of seven. Rule of seven. I discarded the gun, now empty, and ran for the door. 
the relief of night air met me, and I bolted around the yard to my car. I jumped in and felt around in my pocket for my keys. When I pulled them out, I started the car and pulled out onto the track. As I did so, just out of the corner of my eye, I saw a figure in the window of the house. I looked away and drove off into the night, eager to forget. Thank you for listening to the Tomb Creepypasta Podcast. Good night.